Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. Can chaos benefit creativity in a world of digital perfection? In episode three of the B-Side with James Barrow podcast, I speak to photographer, director, and documentary producer Christopher Ireland, member of the Pool Collective, an integrated production company and collective of creative resources. Chris's highly considered work and measured approach has earned him international creative accolades, with work recognised at Cannes, DNAD, Adfest, The One Show, Clio, and Spikes. Chris talks about some of his passion projects, including his portrait series on the residents of Greenway, a government housing estate in the affluent Sydney suburb of Kirribilli. He shares his approach to the work and how he embeds himself in the lives of real people, discovering unique human narratives that he aims to portray with authenticity and respect. We discuss Chris's fascination and rediscovery of the craft and how we overcome adversity by confronting our own insecurities and embracing the unknowns that life throws at us. I really enjoyed our chat. We go deep on a range of topics. It's a long one, so settle in, people. You're in for a treat. Boom. We're here with Chris Island, and I'm so happy to have him here on our podcast. Listeners, you're in for a treat. Chris, how are you, mate? I'm great, James. Thanks for having me, mate. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. What have you been up to, man? Um, well, I've been printing in the darkroom, actually. I've gone back about 30 years <laughs> in recent times. <laughs> Why is that? Is that because you, you, you've just missed the craft, the hands-on tactile nature of the... Exactly. I, I think it's a little bit like a rock musician going back to um, maybe a classical guitar or something kind of early instrumental. Um, and I'm kind of getting back to silver halides, gelatin prints, um, and smelly hands. It's been fun. Smell, what is that smell, by the way? It's always that... It's a quite a distinct, almost... Ammonia meets fish emulsion. What, what? Yeah, well, it depends. If you've just missed, if you've just um, mixed the fixer, it's uh, incredibly strong, and so is the stop bath. And if you lean over them, you don't have good ventilation. You'll get it right up your nose, and it's like putting your head in a bag of salt and vinegar chips and taking a deep breath. Oh man, I'd be just tucking into <laughs> salt and vinegar chips. Salt and vinegar chips, mate. I tell you what. But where, so, where is the dark room? Is it in your studio? Is it the dark room's downstairs? I, I oh. made a negotiation with my wife that, um, provided I didn't impinge too much on the laundry, uh, we could we could co cohabit a, a laundry in a dark room space. So I'm seeing washing machine, dryer, dark room. Pretty well. Uh, the washing machine's very discreetly hidden under the sink, and the dryer is very discreetly hidden under the enlarger. Um, so, you know, you might not even notice it's a laundry. So and when do you get to pull rank, mate? Is it, it, it's sort of, uh, well, I'm working on a project. Another project? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, if there's, if there's four by five negatives hanging above the sink, then, um, you know, the laundry has to wait a few hours for the, for the, for the, for the real washing to dry, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, mate. So it's interesting. You just picking up on what you said earlier. You, you're you're going back thirty or so years. Is that where your your career started? You don't look old enough to have started thirty years ago, mate, by any means. But uh, you know, maybe just talk to us about you know where it all started for you and why photography. Well, I'm 37, and I started photography when I was 19. 
I, I guess I got a pretty early start. I was studying psychology um, at Newcastle Uni and I had to choose an elective halfway through the year and I chose a photography elective and wow, the rest is history. I, I, I deferred indefinitely and I came to Sydney and studied photography at Sydney Institute of Technology um, and I got a job quite early in a commercial studio in the city. So I was a, I was a working commercial photographer from about the age of 21. Um, so I got a really early commercial start. But what I found um, interesting is because it, it's almost like a professional stunt driver learning the, the craft of driving without developing the passion for it first. So what I'm doing now is a bit of a correction. I'm going back and I'm rediscovering my passion for my craft to get a deeper and, and more intimate understanding of it. Would you say in the days of digital photography and the accessibility of the gear that there would be more of an um, emphasis on the outcome and less the journey and the craft? It's, it's a philosophy in itself, isn't it? And it's almost, uh, it's almost zen-like. I'm nodding profusely, yes. Um, <laughs> I recently heard a great definition of creativity, um, and it's, it's really as well as coming up with as many different uses for something, you know, that's an obvious definition of creativity, find 20 ways to use a shoe um, or give me 15 ways that you can harm an animal with a spoon or how can you break a window without using a hard object. I mean, they're creative ideas. Um, And so one type of person will respond to that sort of creative idea with um, a bevy of ideas, but it's not the it's it's not the amount of ideas that you come up with that defines your creativity it's how novel the uses are and how unusual and 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 also useful those ideas are Um, and a second ingredient of uh, creativity is how you expand upon something Um, so getting back to photography when you're shooting digitally and you very much are shooting with a known outcome there's not a whole lot of room for surprise and everything that you're doing to an image is a, delib- a deliberate manipulation. Um, there's something for me missing in that because there are certain elements of the photographic craft that lend themselves to, to informal accidents. And that could be accidentally staining um, something during fix if you're doing a gelatin print or fogging paper slightly. It could be having a light leak in the camera, um, using an emulsion that's slightly old, Um, or simply applying too much of a movement, a camera move to a large format camera. There's so many things you can do in the analog process that introduce these these ideas. And as a creative person and a person who thrives on building upon idea after idea, there's more, um, I suppose, there's more inspiration for me in, in the part of craft that allows error. It's interesting you say that um, that error and being subject to circumstances that are somewhat outside of your control. It reminds me of performance or perform the performing arts, whether it be acting on stage or comedy. You know, so much of it relies on the context, the way you're feeling, the crowd. It's how you're flow. Res- it's, yeah. it's, it's taking – it's like us talking now and you giving me an idea and me feeling like I've got something to add to that. It's, it's that response. If we can respond to each other, um, then we're going to come up with better material than if, if, than if we rehearse something and then just act it out. And for me, in, in a lot of ways, I think this is maybe truer of me personally than the process, although I think a lot of people would agree. 
But for me, the digital process is a little bit more like the well-oiled machine. Um, whereas when you get that response, you can then um, start this interplay of inspiration, response, and then adaptation. Uh, like when I'm directing a commercial or a film, which I last year or the year before I did my first documentary. And so much of documentary making is about responding and going in with flexible ideas. Um, the film was called Salt in the Blood, and it was a 25-minute film that screened on National Geographic um, and on Qantas. And it featured two-time world surfing champ Tom Carroll. And it was about his photographic journey. And photography really became the conduit for exploring his, his life. Um, and and this, this was a, um, a man that had an incredible amount to offer as a subject. But I needed an adaptability in, in exploring him that really benefited from my response to him mm. and that's what I get out of photography and if I'm not getting that out of photography or filmmaking or something creative then it's somehow not quite satisfying what are your thoughts around the transition from from stills to, to motion you know you mentioned salt in the blood and that being a, a film you directed and it was aired on the Qantas channel and Discovery. Uh, National Geographic. National, National Ge- Geographic, sorry. What was the transition like from stills to, to, to video? It's funny. It's uh, I think filmmaking and photography have a lot of similarities, um, but then maybe so does composing music and photography, and maybe so does photography and choreography, um, which, by the way, I've had some experience in. I used to be a classical dancer as a young child. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, but how I got into film was sort of a, a bit unusual. I'd, I'd never set out to be a director. I'd, I'd never gone through film school and, you know, held the clapperboard and, and become a, a runner and then a, maybe a, a second camera assistant and a first camera assistant, a DOP. And they're sort of the traditional methods. Another way people get into directing is sometimes they're an editor. And they might work in, a, in an advertising agency in an in, in-house department and then they go on and become directors. For me, I, I guess I've always had a very directorial style in my photography that, that lends itself to being able to work across multiple disciplines. Um, I'm represented by the Pool Collective. I've been a member of the Pool Collective for 10 years. It was founded by Sean Izzard and Simon Harson, both great friends and mentors, and what they encouraged in me from a very early age was, I guess, a full creative immersion and craft in, in what it is that we do. Mm-hmm. So for me, mm-hmm. you know, I like conversations, I like psychology, I like ideas. Um, and it felt like filmmaking allowed more scope for some of those things. Um, it became a bit more narrative-based. And I, I suppose as a photographer, my skill set's always been going into situations where I need to get a rapport very quickly and I don't have long to get someone's trust. With you know, I'm not saying anything new there, um, except that the the situations got harder and harder, mm. and the rapport had to to be made faster and faster. I'd get flown into Musselbrook, and I'd have to meet a, a coal miner and have him be vulnerable and to- talking about something that affects him working on the land, so I could get a, an emotional reaction that would translate into a still. I've noticed that with you. Like obviously, I've worked with you. 
um, through the work we've done together. And uh, I've seen you at work and it's just poetic how you can just build the trust of the team around you as well as the, the subjects you're, Thank you, you're, you're shooting. I wonder if you could talk to me about some of your tips and techniques you know what, what are some of the sort of ways you can sort of break down people's insecurities and really get to the heart of who they are as a as a subject and, and draw that out of them through your photography i think you know like in the art of conversation just being aware of the other you know sometimes i'm it, you'd be surprised but i can be awkward in social situations or i can keep my head down a little bit um, and i suppose that's because we're aware of how people might appraise us so I guess I'm, I'm conscious of that for, for the person that I'm there to meet or photograph. And so I, I pay them attention. I ask them questions that maybe people wouldn't ask. And very early on, I express a vulnerability in myself that gives them permission to, to let their guard down. So you're disarming any sort of form of insecurity with a bit of self-deprecation. Absolutely. You and, know, being and vulnerable to, in order to sort of allow them to feel they yes. can be the same way. If, if I think, you know, emotional heartfelt material comes from vulnerability. So in any creative situation, if you can allow someone to feel vulnerable or even encourage them to be, to be vulnerable, you're going to get some interesting stuff. Maybe they'll say things that they haven't said or maybe they'll respond to you in a way that's unfamiliar to them. And that's when you get some exciting things. Mm. Because when you're working in the realm of the unfamiliar, uh, people don't say, oh, I know what this is. This is that kind of photo. And, and this is how I respond to that. And this is how I stand and carry myself. So I'm trying to create a really unique dialogue with every single person that I photograph. And I let them know that I'm here for them. Um, and that what we're going to get doesn't exist in the world anywhere. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, there aren't common threads to the way that I shoot that, that other people also use, um, and I'm probably not doing anything new, except if I allow, you know, a good part of my own unique persona to infuse the situation and I explore the unique qualities of the person that I'm there to photograph, then I'm guaranteed that something unique is going to come out of it. Now, that might be something that I have an hour or two, to, to find or it could be something that i have three minutes to find there's a very funny um something very funny played out actually when i shot your advertising campaign last year we were um working in tandem there was justin mcmillan of course doing the directing and i was doing the stills um and we were sharing the production um and justin and i have some common ground he actually knows tom carroll he, um, Justin did some directing on the set of Storm Surfers. That's right. And yeah, so, he was talking about this, yeah. Yeah, and, and I directed Tom in Salt and the Blood, and Tom and Justin are friends. So I actually had quite a bit in common with the director. Um, and I was trying to be considerate of Justin, and, and there was a lot to get through for the shoot. It was a very fast-moving shoot and a, and a wonderful campaign. But there was one particular scene where I had to photograph one of the students walking past the library and we were, we were green screening it and stripping in a background so it could be like study anywhere in the world. Now, I'd spoken to the production department and they said they could give me somewhere around 45 seconds to get this shot. So I thought, well, that's a pretty quick rapport to have to build with that talent <laughs> and I need him to be able to respond. Sorry, mate, it's totally not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way things go. So what I did was I, I sought um, this, this particular um, student and I walked up to him and I said, I'm going to introduce myself. This is going to happen very quickly. I'm a photographer. I, had a, I have a lot of experience, but I'm working on someone else's production today. 
you and I might only have five goes at doing this, but I'm going to get you walking with full stride from right to left. My guys are going to rush in like ants. You're going to see flashes fire, and I'm not going to say much initially. Then after you come back the second time, we're going to try and get this between takes. I'm going to give you more and more feedback. Now, just those 20 or 30 words prepared um, that particular gentleman for what transpired. And, you know, everyone was having a good laugh, James, because we ran in and we got our shots and we ran out and this happened three or four times. But the guy came up to me later and he said, thank you for making that easy. So that's the acknowledgement right there, that one human says to another human, I'm going to put you in a position that could feel awkward, but, you know, just trust me because I know you can do this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's, that's all it means to get a rapport from someone. I think we all get excited when we can show off our talents and... You know, photography's got such a wide range of of applications. It's very rare to have an audience seeing you working at a fast pace. Mm, mm. Um, You know, it's not about showing off, but it is fun. It is fun to test your skills, sometimes in a very tight confine. Yeah. And then what comes out of that is interesting. So in that situation, we had 12 shots to choose from. And I just had to make sure that one of those half a dozen or a dozen shots worked. So it focuses the mind, and then what you come out with isn't compromised. It's, it's, it's unique in some way. It feels as though you're bringing the, the talent along for the journey before you even start hitting the, the shutter. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of the preparation is done more mentally yeah. and emotionally, preparing them for what's just about to happen than just throwing them in front of the camera and then working with them in an organic fashion there. It feels like you're doing the work prior to actually setting them up. I'll give you an analogy. I'm, I'm a bit of a tennis fan and I've seen a lot of live tennis in the last couple of years. I was lucky enough to sit on the court to watch Roger Federer at last year's Australian Open. Oh, well, yeah. uh, and I saw Nadal this year and I watched Rafael Nadal walk onto the court. Now, I'm not, um, I'm not comparing myself with Nadal, but I took inspiration from the way that man operates Everything from the way he walked out onto the court, put his bag down, you know, got his drink bottles obsessively organised. Yeah, absolutely. This is this was in the media as well. I mean, the very- way his clothes fit, the way his hairband sits, the grips, the tape he puts on his hands, his demeanour, his persona, the way he moves about on the court, all these things add up to an experience that this man is in command and that this man is comfortable in this arena. And you feel that confidence. And so, you know, the business part of me is going, wow, um, I'm on his court. The people that play him must feel like he's in control. Now, in sporting situations, I suppose the opponent is, is trying to give their own sense of control. But the fact is Nadal's experienced and that experience permeates the arena. And so what I do is I conduct myself in a similarly professional manner. Um, I've got an amazing crew of people around me. We put a lot of thought and time into production and the nuances that people um, may or may not even notice all add up to a seamless process. Um, So I try and imitate a bit of that. You could draw parallels with people who wear the same black almost uniform every day they go to work. A lot of creative people will only wear a black shirt. I usually do. I, would, I was going to wear a black shirt today, except I thought um, <laughs> that one's in, the, in with the negatives in the dark room. Oh. I'll try a blue one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But it means you can focus all your attention on what it is you actually want to do and where your focus should be, and that is on the, the craft or the art or the creativity in itself. And, and I think I've learned something maybe about myself. I've, um, it's funny, I, 
I've got two boys. My, my sons are nine and seven. And parenthood teaches you a lot about your strengths and weaknesses. And, you, you know, you, 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 call, you have cause to reflect. And I've realized that a lot of photographers are quite quirky, me included. And, and we have this sort of, I, I, I guess I can only describe myself here, but I feel like a few people I know fit into this category. It's almost a, um, a you're almost on the spectrum. You have this intense interest in your passion and it's so intense that you're driven to do it for 20, 30, 40 years and, and continually improve. It's, it's obsessive. But you also have to be outwardly social and empathetic. So there's sort of this weird dichotomy of character traits that mm, go into the mm. mix of what a photographer is. But, but you, you reach um, a certain sort of level with photography where it rewards that dedication mm. and obsession. Some of my early jobs were photographing kind of partners of, of law firms or I, I used to do work for Ernst & Young and um, PwC and stuff like that. Mm. And it must have been funny because I've always looked pretty young and I would have been doing this around 22, 23. Um, and these guys used to sort of give me this sideways look like, is this guy here to shoot me? You know, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it, it initially I found it a fear-inducing thing to take someone's portrait, but I had to turn that around because I needed them to trust me and if I was scared, they could see it. They'd pick up on that. Yeah, right, yeah, and so yeah. through repetition... Um, and, and I guess kind of having to swim in that deep end, I was exposed to so many different people. I, I, would, I couldn't even guess how many portraits I've taken now. I've taken mm. that many portraits, um, you know, from celebrities, um, people in the sporting arenas, through to a lot of farmers, um, a lot of kids. I, I've really used photography to throw me um, a, a wide gamut of life i've seen i've seen and experienced a lot through photography in terms of some of those celebrities you don't have to go into names or anything who who were some of the people that really inspired you uh both personally and professionally and who were some that you were really surprised by in terms of the way they were in front of the camera there's a couple of a couple of celebrity stories that are definitely worth sharing one was when i was an assistant and the photographer that i was working for for a number of years gary heary um, he, he, he has a very strong personality and he's, he's a wonderful, charismatic man and we still stay in touch. Um, we're good friends. He photographed John Howard in Kirribilli House and it was really interesting watching that battle go on between the Prime Minister in his establishment and this um, really quite left-leaning um, bohemian photographer who had his own interests out of the shoot Um and, and Gary was – he was kind of reveling in the challenge and we're driving up to the <laughs> gates and the security guys go, you guys can't bring that in here. And Gary says, yes, we can. We, we're photographing the Prime Minister. It doesn't get any more important. Open those gates. <laughs> and, you know, guys were kind of melting like butter in his hands until John Howard stepped into the room. And, and it was it – was, I'd never seen Gary so quiet and well-behaved oh, as, really? as when John <laughs> Howard walks in and goes, right, where am I standing? What, what do you need me to do? Let's go. That's fantastic. And he was, John was, um, he was cooperative, but he brought the Nadal aura. Oh, really? And yeah. we realized we were in his space. There you we were go. in his yeah. house. Isn't that amazing? And suddenly, like, we all kind of just stood up a little bit straighter and, and took everything quite seriously. Um, but Gary used to talk about deconstructing people's ideas of themselves. So a couple of years later, I had my own go at it, and I, I was to shoot Pat Rafter for Bonds. And he was supposed to appear in undies. 
and the, you know the ad copy was going to say something like you know one last time ladies and gentlemen pat rafter in bonds undies and he was the bonds undies ambassador wonderful looking guy former model tennis player very popular popular with mums and dads and kids and but also you know a beautiful man a lovely man in every way (laughs) so we turn up to the shoot and and pat's in a bathrobe and um you know i'm painstakingly getting my did he say the same thing right where do you want me well you know (laughs) not quite the pat rafter sort of brand right i mean (laughs) no no he didn't say that all all he's all all that happened sorry pat (laughs) (laughs) well i stuffed up because i when i first started talking to him I, i talked about a game um where he played um, Andre Agassi and I'm a tennis fan and to this day I don't know how I got it mixed up but um, I described his backhand lob over Andre Agassi's head in the fifth set I think um, I remember that yeah. but he told me <laughs> that that was Leighton Hewitt because I'd, I'd referenced oh, the, the I'd referenced the wrong um, I think I said the Australian Open and it was oh, the right. US Open and he said I think you'll find that's Leighton so he sort of got off on the wrong foot yeah. um, but then when I asked him to stand in for the photo he wouldn't take his gown off and I said oh yeah, Mr Rafter we, uh, we now need you to do re- remove the gown he said oh no I'm not removing the, ga- the gown and I'm looking at my ad layout which you know clearly has this man in undies and isn't, we had, he, isn't he like a, an underwear? Didn't he know that? Didn't he read the brief? Well, he's, well, he's promoting turns, underwear, it, man, like not it, gowns. It turns gowns. out that the advertising, the ad, the ad executives hadn't been 100% open with him and, oh, and he thought he was no. just doing it in the TV commercial. Oh, but really? once he got to the stills, he, he had a different contract. So we had to think on our feet. We ended up leaving him in the, in the gown. Um, and the ad ran, you know, would you like to see a 40-year-old dad in his undies this Father's Day vote yes or no? And so everyone texts in yes, of course. And then three weeks later, um, everybody next to Pat, all these extras from the movie set in their 40s are donning the, the underwear and Pat leaves on the robe. So uh, we, we yeah, sort of yeah. made something else out That's of it. That's brilliant. That's really brilliant, thinking on your toes. In terms of sort of revealing something that people don't know about you, You've spoken a lot about photography, and you did touch on the fact that um, you were incredibly shy as a young man. What are some other things that people may not know about you that you're happy to reveal? (laughs) There's a few things that make people laugh at the Pool Collective. One is that they feel that they're equal opportunities because I have a disabled left hand. All right. And I can't turn my palm up, which means sometimes my shooting technique suffers a little bit. And I do the amateurish thing of holding the lens backwards ah, and, yeah. uh, you know, much to the ire of people. And how, is, that you, you were, is that congenital? You were born with that? Or is no, it just, I, I was a hand? very active child and I've got a, a number of broken bones in my body, including my back. I've had back really? surgery. Um, so I'm a bit accident prone. Not, not many people know that about the hand, but... Um, maybe more fundamental to my photography was something I touched on earlier. Um, I was, I was, I wouldn't say established, but I was a promising young classical dancer. Um, Mm, mm. mum put me into dancing when I was about six until I was around about 11 or 12. And then I, I kind of took things from dancing and then went into sport and then picked up Mm. sport incredibly quickly because I had this classical training. Um, but I think reflecting on that now, I was exposed to a certain pressure and discipline and, and creative interpretation and expression um, that not many other kids at that age had. So effectively, my parents were kind of culturing me in some way, mm. um, which was foreign, you know, in other aspects of life for me. So It's all the same language, though, isn't it, really? You know, whether it be dance, whether it be performing arts, whether it be fine arts, design and so on, there's this certain rhythm that binds all of the arts and, and the design and various professions. And there's this sort of thing that you pick up on. You know, people talk about there being, 
you know, certain people are more uh, tuned into that to that rhythm or that frequency. And I think I, I can understand why, you know, uh, dancers, for some reason I say dance, thanks. You know, my grandmother was a Kiwi. She'd always pick up on us when we'd dance in France and, you know, she hated that. My mother was always Francis. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, so there's this rhythm that sort of, and, and this frequency that sort of unites all of these genres of the arts. How do you apply that? You, like, that hasn't disappeared, right? I don't That's think so. Just- yeah, uh, and I still, uh, you know, interestingly today I was listening to Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Um, now, I'm not musically trained. I couldn't write music to save myself. But I feel like I understand um, when music's speaking to me. Um, and, you know, something else people don't know about me. I, I've been known to be reduced to tears in the car from classical music because it, it touches my soul, man. It's like it's it's doing something to me that's... Um, feels like it's transcending time and space and that somebody could write this music three or four hundred years ago and speak to me now and stop me in my tracks now. Is that amazing? And maybe there's maybe that's that rhythm that you're referring to. And I and I think I might be butchering this completely. Some Quarry University researchers have researched uh, classic music and the benefits of listening to it. The research is more restrained to people with Alzheimer's and various other disorders with regards to the mind. And and music unlocks and can help with a lot of these these issues. Like it is proven, it, there is some physiological change that happens to us when we listen to classic music. I can't speak to exactly why that is, but isn't that fascinating? Yeah, there's definitely something in there. I think it's it's the art of the composer. It's something the composer's doing that is unraveling your sense of, I don't know, your external vision of yourself and the way you carry yourself through life. They're kind of de-threading at that, and that's what cap- captures you unaware. Most artists who create music or, you know, choreograph dance or um, make photography are trying to snap you out of maybe the rhythms of your life and and for for a brief moment we're trying to put you into our rhythm um so you know when i'm when i'm reduced to tears listening to classical music i'm i'm succumbing to that rhythm that that somebody's planting in me um and what i try and do with my portraits especially is to speak to people um and and that's exciting to an artist because you know i think it all comes down to a a fear of death Mm. it's Mm. some sort of clutch at immortality Mm. and maybe i'm recognizing that by listening to vivaldi all these years later, it's like, well, Vivaldi's still here. Bach's still here. Mm. Um, I, I sense it more. Pop music's more nostalgic and it's more of the era, you know, and you can you can reminisce and listen to stuff that maybe John Lennon um, came up with, which is still very moving, but you're only talking about a few decades. Mm. You know, we're, we're talking here about hundreds of years um, or it's like looking at ancient art. Um, it's been really interesting to contemplate what the next level of that will be the vivaldis of the world something that is enduring and almost eternal what is that going to be i mean well it'll be an expression it'll be a form of expression and it, and it will be you know even the person who is trying to move other human beings isn't necessarily sure of what it is they're doing they're they're just playing with something and they're playing with it particularly well well it goes back a few of them were tuned into this really high frequency and there were very few of them who managed to get there at the time and i think they all stumbled on this and thought this is it we're speaking to the 
to the human psyche. We're talking the language. If aliens came down and they were to um, decipher all of the sounds, the discovery, discovery one and two have yeah, um, yeah. is it is it bark? Yes, on there? that's right. <laughs> Yeah. But do you know what I mean? It's like that's the most highest, most sophisticated, sophisticated form of communicating via sound without having having to actually l- literally describe what it is you're you're saying. You know, like and I know we we could go on about music forever, but it is a fascinating thing. But there is there is a quality in it that I think links to other stuff that I'm doing, um, uh, or trying to do. There's definitely a quality in music that links to what I'm trying to do with my portraits. And that's that it sort of transcends class. You know, although particularly with classical music, there's a, there's a certain prestige that people try to attach to it. But the fact is anyone with ears and, you know, access to earphones or a speaker can, can experience music. And it's the same like Shakespeare used to, used to be able to speak to everybody. He could speak to the people on the floor um, in the pits and he could speak to the people in the galleries And in all those instances, you know, if people didn't like what he was doing, they'd throw tomatoes. And so he democratised the enjoyment of um, theatre. And and I think nobody has used words like that man and maybe ever will. Um, But it transcends class. And I think that really for art to speak, it needs to digress from trying to speak to certain class and it needs to challenge those ideas and become really universal. Mm. Would you say... um the democratization of art whether it be in digital form or otherwise has quickened and we and and i know we talked about it has taken some elements of the craft away from the process well it's taken the dis- think it's, i think it's taken away the discovery um, is it a good thing though that more people are appreciating art you know you've got millions and millions of photographers out there engaging certainly in some ways it is yeah like yeah. it, it a good example is the way films made a resurgence. Um, mm. A couple of years ago, another reason I went back to film was to teach my kids what photography is mm. because someday people won't know that it used to be a, a process. You know, but once it was a camera obscura and before that we were, we were painting in rocks with our fingers. So mm. maybe we're just doing the same things in different ways and technology is evolving. Certainly, you know, the fact that photography has become popular has helped things commercially like the film the fact that you can buy film and papers because there's a resurgence a renewed interest in it but unfortunately when something becomes sort of fodder for masses of people it becomes a sort of a a, a bit of a sideshow um it gets rapidly discovered rapidly looked at and then and then just as rapidly discarded so the challenge for something you know digital is to is to last and and the reason i'm so enamored with physical photography and printing is that the print is guaranteed to last one to 200 years physically Hmm. with digital we're not so sure what it is we're creating i I wouldn't mind betting that not much will exist as as a footprint of our civilization digitally now i don't know how people will discover this podcast in 50 years time i mean hopefully they do If, if indeed it's um, stored and, and archived properly, it, it will exist. But a lot of digital stuff isn't existing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons, but um, 
maybe for photographers the biggest frustration is that kind of trivial trivialization of photography mm, would you say that would be your you know if you were to get up on your soapbox and you were to scream something about the industry what are, would you say that is what is most concerning you about the industry at the yeah moment, the but it's it's like commoditization of art essentially and the the devaluing of it because of its yeah. accessibility it's a pseudo familiarization it's everybody thinks they understand photography and 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 you know to be clear photography is for people everyone takes pictures um i've just finished reading um susan sontag's book on photography and it's deeply intellectual about well, everyone that. well you could say the same about cooking right everyone can cook yeah it doesn't make me a chef so i can't I don't have you know three hats or, or a michelin star or anything there's a very big chasm between cooking something for uh sustenance and presenting a meal fit for royalty you know yeah so if you know i, I can't be too snobbish about photography and claim ownership I don't think over that's, it. The, that's not the intention but there is a certain level of craft that is lost on a lot Absolutely. of people who think they're suddenly a photographer because they uh, can pick up a bloody iphone with three cameras built into it and a and an instagram filter it, you know? sometimes Sometimes it's embarrassing, you know, how quickly you get feedback on a shoot. You, you know, you, you, you've set up a light or two, you've, you've taken one or two sort of test shots and people are sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're shower you, showering you in compliments and you haven't started. You haven't started your process and you realise how low their threshold is. And, you know, when, it's, when there's a decision-making process, um, people think they know what photography is until they see it. Just, just like I think I'm good at tennis until I meet Rafa Nadal and realise that what he calls tennis and what I call tennis are two different things. That doesn't mean that I can't appreciate what he does. Um, but, you know, that tennis is another great example. We all watch TV. We all watch tennis. But I think at some level we know we can't do that. What I find frustrating with photography is because it's a digital process now, primarily, and because everyone has an iPhone and they can take a photo, they assume that they take good photos and their ignorance blinds them to, towards the possibilities about what their photography can become. So, you know, I feel like if I've got an informed audience or I have a chance to talk to someone about what it is I'm trying to do, they're, they're definitely more invested in it. But there's a sea of other people out there who call themselves photographers now and, and I think now more than ever, it's, it's a very popular profession. That's a really good point. I was talking to a photographer some time ago about his I guess journey in photography and it really all started with an apprenticeship and part of that apprenticeship was years and years spent setting up lights and having to bounce these lights off mirrors that were also set up in the studio in order to to learn the skill of shaping light almost painting with light how much of that craft is being lost now with this emphasis on digital quick turnaround photography and how what can you say to young potential photographers that will sort of reinforce the importance of that aspect of it i'd encourage anybody that's serious about photography to to um to follow that sort of method that apprenticeship style method um, I started out as an assistant. Well, I started out early as a photographer. Then I, I, I stepped out of the commercial space and then I spent years assisting Gary Heary, who I mentioned earlier, and Sean Izzard. And, you know, it was being exposed to Sean daily um, that made me realise that photography had potential to be something else and that craft wasn't just a word that was waved around. I, I could see it. And I was just personally delighted to even to be a fly on the wall and see how Sean operated 
and he he's been revered for a long time as a as a leading Australian photographer. So it's a tremendous privilege for me to really come up through Sean's guidance. And he remains a mentor. He helped me set up the darkroom recently. And we, we often bounce photos back and forth and mm, seek mm, opinion on films. Yeah. And, and I do more in filmmaking now. He's starting to do a bit in filmmaking. And, and so, you know, I'm giving a bit back to him there. But having, having a, um, a mentor is vital. Um, and does that mentor need to be more formal in its arrangement? Uh, like I'm a mentor for certain people as well, and it is through a, a, a quite a formal body that helps facilitate that through the trenches. Some people sort of develop a, a mentor-mentee relationship in a very organic manner. Is it? More- I feel like it's a natural thing for humans to do. Um, like you, I'm also a mentor. I'm in a community program that my neighbours started called Mentoring Men. Um, and I meet with my mentee once a fortnight and we talk about life. Um, and it's kind of like a halfway point between, you know, um, keeping things bottled up and going to see a psychologist. It's just mm. an outlet. Mm. Um, and I feel like, you know, particularly men now have felt like they've lost that outlet. So the mentee-mentor relationship is nothing new. Um, it's worked for us for a long time. It's how stories have been shared and skills have been honed and how we, we've learned to hunt and make things and craft things and cook things and and you know you learn how to how to love your wife by watching your your parents in Mm. a lot of instances or you learn how to parent through how you were parented and so these these ideas are nothing new um so we should tap into them and part of the idea of having a an apprentice the, the benefit to the apprentice is they see the master at their craft and they realize how deep that craft goes and and yeah sadly some of that craft is feeling a bit undervalued but I'm confident that, um, you know, it's up to us as photographers to to just gently redistribute people's awareness and, and to give ourselves the opportunity to show what craft looks like in a shot mm. and how it moves people and ultimately commercially how it sells things or how it motivates someone for change. So speaking of the commercial side of things, what are you working on now? At the moment, um, I'm working on actually quite a lot of brand libraries for usually big corporations. Um, I suppose my my niche at the moment is you know getting that rapport, getting that spark, getting authenticity, humility. Or does that always come through commercial work? I mean, I, I know a lot of photographers talk about, and I think you and I have mentioned this earlier. You get really excited about some of your less commercial projects. Do, can you talk about some of those? Or yeah, it's um, like I, I, I certainly. I get louder and more excited when I talk about my personal projects. I don't want to piss off any of your clients. No, and I I love my commercial work. (laughs) I really do. But, um, you know, the the reality is that when I look back on my career and I'm in, you know, hopefully a good age in my 70s or 80s, I'll look back to more than just my commercial achievements. And I'm realistic to know that those commercial achievements will almost count for nothing, apart from the fact that they enable me to see the world they enable me to monetize my creativity, which is incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, and, and they allow me to build darkrooms and make work. So, um, you know, it all started with the commercial opportunities. And now commercially, I've been able to use those skills and make things that I really, really care about that I don't get paid for. And what are some of those things you really, really care about? Well, I'm working on a book called Greenway. It's taken 10 years to make. I've shot about 100 portraits and done 30 or 35 interviews. Um, and I'm aiming to publish that m- middle to sort of later this year. Um, it's going through its third design concept now with Paul Garbett, 
who's very kindly agreed to to get on board and help me design it. Um, and Paul's a, a, a very well-renowned and awarded designer. Um, and this book is really black and white portraits inside a housing commission building in Kirribilli. So talk to me about this project because I'm really, really interested in these stories and stories that Australia doesn't really get the opportunity of hearing very often. Where did it start and how, how did you get into the lives and the homes of these people to be able to it's a good interview question. And, and, and shoot them? It started with a 101-year-old called Albert and I was to meet with him to do his portrait. I'd, I'd seen that there was a local art prize and I asked them, who's the oldest person in, in Kirribilli? And they said, oh, that's Albert up there. And they pointed to this strange brown building. So I asked if they could introduce me to this man and they said, yeah, sure. So up I went, 10 flights of stairs, and I met this sort of sprightly... Um, fiery welsh guy who was 101 he looked about 80 80 75 um and and yeah he was 100 and and at that stage he was australia's oldest public housing resident Um, oldest public housing resident yeah and and greenway is a brown building that shadows the cahill expressway that's the name of the book as well isn't it yeah that's right well that's the working title and for our international listeners curability is a quite an affluent suburb in sydney new south wales australia it looks across to the opera house you can see the opera house and the bridge from from the windows and the irony there is the government housing is almost like the flats of london or you know the projects of america new york and so on but it's in absolutely pristine and wonderful a wonderful environment the interesting thing about the placement of greenway within kirribilli is that kirribilli is one of australia's most affluent suburbs um, and the socioeconomic average of the people living in Greenway is incredibly so low. So you've got this disparity between those who are dirt poor, living on government handouts, generations of poverty alongside some of the richest people in Australia. Yeah, and when you get those, when you get any sort of friction in, in an art project, that's where the interesting stuff comes out. And in this case, it's that friction between, you know, the, the class divide. Um, and so... You know, I guess the more I was getting commercial success, the more I was going into Greenway because it felt like, um, you know, the portraits, offering someone to do a portrait for them was, was an interesting thing. So after after photographing Albert, someone asked me as I went down the stairs if I'd shoot her portrait and her name was Vera. So I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And, and I shot her portrait and then came back a couple of weeks later and sat out the front with a camping chair and a sign saying, free photos, no catch. Um, because I thought, well, if, if two people wanted me to take their portrait, there must be more in here, and, and hey, it'd be great for me. I'll get these stories and these faces, and I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I, I just saw all these corridors with doors, and, and, you know, like the Everest Challenge, thought, well, how hard would it be to knock on those doors? So I sat out the front with this sign, and I had, you know, 20 portraits shot by the end of the week. Fantastic. Um, yeah. I've now gone back probably 50 times. I've got a number of friends in that building, um, I've met the local politicians. Um, you know, I've sort of had a bit of a taste of um, the current political um, games that go on between public public sourced funding, not for profit organisations, buildings. You know, attitudes towards locals. The, and what are some of the attitudes towards locals? I mean, it, it is quite well, people are dismissive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, it's it's true of most of us that we we sort of look upwards in terms of social class. And, and we might aspire, we might see ourselves as belonging to a higher social class than we maybe really do. Um, and, and so what happens is no one wants that public housing building in, in, their, in their suburb. suburb and, yeah. and the fact is that 
That housing building's been there since World War Two. It was built for returned servicemen. There's always been that stigma. I spent some time in the in a housing commission complex. My mum was a single mum for for some time before she remarried, and it it was the same sort of situation. In Petersham, however, I'm not saying Petersham is uh, any Kirribilli, and you know it is quite working class. But we lived side by side with people who were quite well to do, you know. So now I spent pretty much all of my high school years uh, growing up in this particular little complex, and I met people from all walks of life, and really got to understand them. There were people from diverse backgrounds, you know. I think neighbour on one side spoke Greek, the neighbour on the other side spoke Turkish, the neighbour opposite me spoke Portuguese. He was from Brazil. There were a, a gay couple on the corner. There were people from all backgrounds and and, and the cultures. fact that you know that says something about the way people banded together in it order was, to survive. It was fascinating. I learnt so much about people, and I learnt to empathise with people from all backgrounds, from all walks of life. It was fascinating. It, and I wouldn't change it for a thing. I actually thanked my mum before she passed away for that experience because she worked her ass off to try and provide, um, you know, a life for myself and my my, my th- three other siblings, sorry. And, you know, she, she felt quite ashamed of having to sort of go through this stint uh, living in the housing commission, always aspired for something else. Well, but I, I never saw it that way. I'd never, it never, never affected me negatively. In fact, it made my life so much richer. And I, I really think you sharing these people's stories. It's not because it's um, poverty porn, for lack of a, a better word. It's- although I do ask myself a lot what my motivations are. And, um, you know, I, I sought some advice from a curator that put on my first show about mesothelioma called Breathe. Mm-hmm. And what I did was photograph the um, asbestos widows who'd lost their husbands to, to mesothelioma. Mm-hmm. Um, and this man, Alastair Foster, is, is um, very well considered when it comes to photography, and he's an academic man and a thinker. And I called him and I said, I want to do this book, but it's not like the people in the stories are bashing me over the head to publish the book. It, you know, it's, it's more my fascination than their fascination. Am I doing the right thing? And, you know, he didn't just reassure me and say, yeah, it's no problem. He, he really put me under some scrutiny about why I was doing the project and we talked about it and it took several weeks for me to feel like that publishing it was the right thing to do. He suggested that I go back and just ask people and it seems really obvious but, you know, photographers can get... A couple of things can happen. Sometimes, sometimes people from um, maybe less privileged backgrounds see some sort of novelty in, in people from, you know that are struggling a little bit more. Mm. So it becomes this sort of middle-class safe fascination instead of a, a concern and, and, and a willingness to try and break down barriers. So I think an awareness of that was quite important and, and for mm. me to acknowledge that I come from a fairly comfortable middle-class background. Although, I, you know, my parents were public school teachers and mum has a, a very um, strong heart and... Um, yeah, the, my mum was a teacher as well, so yeah, yeah, yeah probably had they probably had similar social um, focuses. So mum was loved by students and often gets stopped in the street now. And, and you know, mum's long retired, but um, while those things are in me, I had to be honest about why I was doing the project. So I went back and I read some of the most hard hitting stories to those residents, and and they said, yeah, I think you should publish it. I'd like you to publish it. And they signed they signed to to show that you know. They want this um, this out there. And I wouldn't say that everybody that I've interviewed in the book is enthusiastic for the book to get out there, but a vast majority of them are. And the feeling is that the 
the rest of Australia needs to see how public housing supports people and how it enables them to thrive. Mm. And also, it's it's like on the optimistic side, it's a wonderful example of how communities band together to get things done. When I first went in there 10 years ago, it was a bit of a smelly, run-down place. There was a lot of drug activity. There was a lot of crime. Um, now there's there's a barbecue area. There's a community centre, a wellbeing centre. They've had lifts installed. I mean, it's absolutely changed. And a lot of that's down to some internal political determination within Greenway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, it, it, you know, the fact that you can remember the gay couple and, and the Greek woman from your own background says a lot about the way that we used to live. And we live in hedonistic times now. And hedonism is described as the unwillingness to go through discomfort. And now everything's great, so kind of nothing is. But there is another common thread that I've found really um, alluring, and that's that when people have a lot materially they don't seem to give a lot of themselves when people don't have a lot materially they seem to give an incredible amount of, mm. of mm. you know about and themselves. the stats that i know there's been research done in this particular area and it is the people from the uh, who can afford at least are the ones who give the most yeah for, and our our um our not-for-profit organisations will will attest to that as well. You know, they get it's the it's the low socio-economic areas that are giving the most money, which is quite disconcerting in a sense. When you- and and also like worth flipping the question. We know we know what people think of housing commission, but when do we flip that and say well, what do housing commission residents think of the rest of us? And that's what you're doing with this, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, the project. flipping yeah. it inside out. And yeah. and I say that what what is it like? What's that stigma like? You know. Um, people think that you fail to take responsibility. There's judgment that people cast aspersions about why you're here. Um, There's a certain vulnerability. You're on show. Um, But they're like, yeah, that's okay. Um, You know, they're they're taking part of a project where they're going to be in a book. But then, you know, ask them to give their input about what, what, how they see the rest of the world. And you get some incredible insights, you know, some people have a way of putting things that carve straight through any kind of <laughs> convention. And what are some of those profound insights that you heard from? Oh, gee, I could probably recite a few. Um, every, you know, everyone's got a book in them. Everyone's got a story to tell. But some stories are just a hell of a lot more interesting than others. Um, that's what Adam said. Or, um, no, stay true to yourself because people will appreciate you for who you are unless you're a complete cunt, of course. I don't know if you can use that one. <laughs> Mate, you can use this one. That's fine. We've got the explicit rating. <laughs> um, yeah, it. there's people I talking about domestic violence. There's people talking about sexual stigma. There's people mm-hmm. talking about all sorts of things. Um, and it's it's great to um, get it, to break down some of those boundaries and let people have a frank discussion about what life's like from their side. The challenge will be getting people to read it who aren't in the same situation. And yeah, that's what I'm going to yeah. find hard. Um, I think the way to go there is to maybe expose it to people at a tertiary level um, who, is, who are studying social sciences or who are involved in healthcare or aged care um, or people that are bound for other um, social classes like doctor, medical students, um, you know, police, social workers, that sort of thing. It, it, you know, it's a study in humanity, really. That's what it is. And, and you've gone through with the lens of being a photographer but really you're sort of getting to the heart of people's fears and motivations and everything else i think the perfect vehicle for this would be tying it in with some sort of academic authority i think it'll be an audience who's very engaged in those issues and then hopefully it'll get it'll get shared among a bigger audience 
but it's amazing back to photography once you've got a camera in your hand you you have a lot of uh you get a lot of freedom people give you a lot of trust what happens when that freedom ends and and just to pivot for a second did you ever get stuck i mean how do you beat creative block or do you ever come up against brick walls conceptually yeah and again you know to ask me about mentors before sean used to say to me if you're ever stuck get out and walk around the block the shoot's not going to end people aren't going to go home but you might come back with a better idea and and once i was on a shoot with sean actually i was directing some films and he was shooting the stills for them and they were they were stories of survival around breast cancer for the cancer council and there was one particular story of sue um who'd had a horrific journey with cancer and and i was the interviewer and so i had to had to really delve into her story and it was deeply moving and Mm. and personal and and i reached a point where i got kind of like maybe you'd call it stage fright or something i i couldn't ask any more questions and she's sort of looking at me waiting she's (laughs) like what's the next question i said i think i'm going to go and take a walk around the block so um, you were just overcome with... I was overcome with everything I was taking on board yeah, because yeah. when you're directing in particular, with, with photography, it's an aesthetic thing. So, yes, the stories matter, but often you're recording the stories separately to the taking of the photos. But mm-hmm. when you're doing mm-hmm. a film, the the imagery and the story is coming w- at you at the same time. And you're trying to keep one eye on the future and one eye on the present. It's exhausting. It's like nothing I've described. It doesn't matter whether you're in an editing suite, you're an edit suite, sorry, or you're behind the camera or you're sitting down as we do as art directors. The whole process is incredibly draining when it comes to film. And I think, I don't know exactly why that is, but it seems to suck something out of you. Yeah. And it's, you know, the more conversational you can keep it, the better. Um, when I made the film with Tom, um, Salt in the Blood, I didn't really know much about Tom and I, I fessed up, you know, I confessed that to him about three weeks into the project. I said, Tom, I've got to fess up, mate. I had no idea who you were. And he and he said that was really funny and so therefore it showed him that I wasn't a fan trying to steal something from him. Uh, so I had to learn some unorthodox storytelling. So I I put the camera next to me and and I'd say at some point we're going to have a conversation make me a cup of tea or whatever because he kept offering me cups of tea and and so i would always accept as soon as you say something interesting i might ask you can i roll and so i'd try and catch him a bit off guard and 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 the film became this cat and mouse of me trying to get these conversations recorded but instigate them first because um, yeah it can become incredibly exhausting yeah yeah because you've got to be on the whole time and and and, and present and sometimes that's quite quite hard isn't it it really is usually what you're doing is you're trying to get something and and yes you are turning your, yourself inside out to do it and it's lost to other people but they do tend to notice the results mm-hmm. so for me with advertising it's it's getting those human breakthroughs it's it's moving people or having them think about things in a different way i made a film for canon about four or five years ago that's been viewed 12 million times on youtube it's amazing um it it just hit it hit some it hit a note it went viral yeah Yeah, yeah. when viral was a new thing it's like oh what's viral again (laughs) yeah yeah and you know i've tried to do it since without that same success something hits it something misses it um but you know if you can find a breakthrough or a connection there was something in the frequency that people have picked up on right there you go yeah, yeah like, it's quite interesting. What is your favourite piece of work, by the way, whether it be commercial or otherwise? Edward Curtis did The American Indian, which was a 21-volume book set. Um, I think it was shot in around nine, 1900, 
it was a uh, around about a 15 to 20 year project where he anthropologically and artistically photographed the North American Indians. Now, those projects by today's standards could be slightly romanticised. You know, we could look at them and say, oh, they're romantic notions of culture. But there was a real pathos in those images that I thought transcended anything from the time. Edward Curtis, the American Indian. I'd love to put links up to this yeah. so people could investigate it, it, this uh, series themselves. You know, disclaimer, the work made him mad. Um, but here's a guy that shot daguerreotype, so he's palladium plating tin, effectively, coating it with a photosensitive um, chemical liquid. Um, I'm fairly sure that was his process, or the daguerreotype process might have differed slightly, but effectively they were photographing onto tin. Um, in his early days, he might have done some glass plate stuff, but, I mean, you're not talking about going to the lab and buying some 10 sheets and, and exposing them. You know, guys then, they were pioneers. They built their own cameras. That guy mm. travelled with his own darkroom. It was a bit like the early pioneers of film as well, cinema, the Lumiere right. others, and they, they were like engineers. They were, yeah, they, they, were, was, they, were, they were scientists and magicians and creatives. Absolutely. And, and yeah. so talk about your head spinning. Frank Hurley, um, you know, going to Antarctica with, with um, Captain Scott and going on, the, on those missions um, and washing plates in salt water. You know, anytime I'm feeling like I'm, I'm griping about a shoot being hard because my shoulder hurts or I've been up a ladder too long, I, yeah. I try and think of those guys because, man, they put me to shame. Going back to Edward Curtis again, and you talked about it being an anthropological study into the, the Native Americans. How much of that would be a parallel to what you're currently doing now? You know, it is really just understanding humanity. It is an extension of... You know, our history, our culture, you know, 70,000 years ago, we walked out of Africa. You know, some of us stayed behind, others, you know, only 15,000 years ago, we wound up in the Americas. You know, uh, genetically, uh, Native Americans are Asiatic. You know, we've been in Asia for, you know, 50,000, 60,000 years and so on. I find all of this quite fascinating, and it's wonderful that through photography, we've been able to capture a period of time that records it, even though it may yeah. be fast-tracked well, a thousand or two well, that, years. That's the great thing about a photograph. It takes a slice of, of a continuum in life and takes it out of the continuum and puts it somewhere for storage Do you know to, what I mean? to You're be later looked at. Now. You're doing that now. I well, try and think like that. If yeah. we had cameras, you know, 20,000 years ago, wouldn't that be amazing? Or yeah. We could capture it. I think that's the power of photography. It's, it's, it's a frozen moment, and, and it's a profoundly interesting set of parameters. Yes, there's an aesthetic, there's, a, there's an aesthetic quality to photography, but what it really it says so much about what we deem important, and and you know, I'm slightly embarrassed to draw parallels between my ten year project and Edward Curtis's thirty year project, um, but maybe some things they had in common was that notion that time was running out. Um, you know, the the fate of the North American Indian, um, he knew it was an ill fated future. Um, and, and maybe at some level I know that public housing has an ill-fated future and therefore I have a responsibility to find those stories because I have, I have a gift at being able to talk to people and find, find out what those stories are. So, yeah, you could say that that project inspired maybe my patience, mm. but he just did it on a scale that was just, you know, kind of prior to and, and since just not really been equaled. What about your own personal piece of work? What's your favourite personal piece of work? Two years ago, my wife had a stroke. It was very unexpected. 
and I was filming the film. Uh, I was I was directing Tom Tom's documentary, the Salt and the Blood documentary. Midway through the filming production, my wife had a stroke. So um, you know that that shook us up, and and she's okay. She's, thankfully, she's oh, recovered. Oh, um, you know, she's had a lot of migraines, and life's been a little bit wobbly for us yeah, getting back yeah. on track. But meanwhile, the kids grow up. They're seven and nine now, but when she had the stroke, they were, you know, they were seven and five. Yeah. So it's quite recent still. Yeah, yeah. it's recent in our lives. How's she going? She's doing pretty well. Mm. Yeah, she's working and she's back. She's made a full recovery. What does she do for a living? She's a a lawyer at the Cancer Council. Oh, really? So she works in the not-for-profit space Mm. and Mm. she works three days a week and that, that allows us to to sort of manage our busy lives when things get busy with me and I end up doing a lot of travel, as I can do when, when mm. work really picks up. So that must have knocked you guys around a bit. It knocked yeah. us around. And, and seeing, you know, I had these, I had I had two conflicting thoughts. And again, you know, not to trivialise what Aaron went through, but when you have two f- forces working at friction with each other, that's where interesting art comes. And, Isn't and that funny? It's, it's so the friction for me was the pain, was watching my wife go through pain. And my wife and I have been it's, – it's our wedding anniversary in a couple of days. We've been together for 20 years. Wow. And So wait a minute. You're, you're 36? 37. I turned 37. 38 soon. There you go. So, so you were childhood sweetheart. We were 17. Yeah. That's fantastic. So it, 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 it was very upsetting learning that what she'd experienced was a That's stroke. Your best friend, your partner, the yeah. mother of your children. Exactly. I mean. Yeah. I mean, at the best of times, that'd be mm. difficult. Um, so it really, that really gave me cause to reflect on where I was heading commercially and artistically. And, well, and it puts things into perspective. Yeah. It? What's important in our lives and, 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 mm. You know, let's not get precious about the wrong things. So, you know, the two forces that are working was Aaron's pain and the kid's continual growth. So I called the work growing pains. Um, and right. so at all these kind of life moments, like the last day Jonathan was six, we did a series of portraits of him because I felt that, you know, I think I feel like all parents feel it, that sense of having to let go of a certain age and by immortalizing that in a photograph, at least for 100 years or 200 years, I feel like I can hold on to it for a bit and he'll reflect on it. And so when I take those sorts of photographs, I try and view them as I might in 50 years' time. Yeah, and that yeah. guides the way that I shoot. That's really special. I mean, thanks for sharing that as well. I mean, it's not a... Oh, pleasure. It's always good to talk about your work. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it is. But uh, it's such a personal piece of work as well. I can understand why. Well, if you you use the parts of yourself, the qualities of of you that are unique... I think that's where the most... You talked about that tension, that pain, and and putting yourself out there and really being willing to explore and reflect on what it is you're currently feeling. I made a short film called mum said and it was almost a a project of catharsis i really wanted to discover something that i was grappling with myself personally Filmmaking does that yeah and it, it allowed me to do that and i've sort of shut the door on 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 a part of my life that i needed to sort of open go into and explore all the dark corners of and yeah now after i've sort of after i completed that project i felt that sense of relief there's definitely a catharsis in creating mm. work I, I you know i've, I've heard um people like jordan peterson talk about the, the psychology of creative people um and the way that creative people feel compelled to share creatively mm. or they don't feel balanced and and i can relate to that so 
you know, I'm a photographer and a filmmaker, so my way of responding to seeing my wife go through a, a stroke, which could have ended her life and changed our family, is to document the recovery. Um, mm. And, you know, when I was younger, I thought it was selfish that photographers like uh, Richard Avedon and Annie Libowitz would, would, would photograph their dying partners or fathers, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Looking back now, having kids of my own, I view that through a totally different lens. Yeah. And Susan Sontag's death was documented by Annie Leibowitz. And we're talking about death here, and I'm not talking about death in my particular experience, no. but this is people understanding that notion of immortality, that, that a photograph lasts for longer than a human mm. life mm. in many ways, mm. which is what's lacking a lot with digital stuff. What are your thoughts on current work? Is there any work that you're seeing out there at the moment that you either want to give props to or... I think there's some Is really... Is doing some stuff that really you find quite inspiring? Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a wave of people using YouTube. And it's funny because, you know, it's, a lot of these guys are 20, 21. There's a particular guy called Willem Verber, Willem Verbeek. Willem Verbeek. He's uh, 20 and he's a, he's a resident of um, New York City and he, he blogs his photo walks and he's got a mate called Joe Greer. And I just love tuning in once a week to see what these guys have shot. And they just, they have amazing eyes. The way they shoot, you, you see, because they put on a first-person perspective, it's, it's really fun. They're creating videos almost in a, in a naive way, um, but they're just shooting. They're not. They're quite incredibly smart, but they're shooting in a, in a form that discovers things so that the viewer is perched on top of the camera and you almost see their fingers working on the dials and you see what they see and they shoot it and then they show it. Brilliant. And they've, they've created this genre. And, I mean, these guys have got following of two, three, four hundred thousand people. Um, and I just think the work's amazing. Locally, um, I think there's, there's an underrepresentation of females in our industry and there's photographers like Alex Vaughan. Um, who, you talked about Annie Leibovitz. I mean, well, what a role model to aspire towards yeah, she, for any photographer, regardless of uh, you know your gender. Yeah, we, we've got um, some amazing talents in the pool collective. Juliet Taylor. I mean, she's yeah. she's got a very well established profile and, and an incredible amount of kudos. And I, I think she's an amazing photographer. Uh, Crystal Wright is another member of the collective. Um, I think there's a I lot of overlooked work coming from yeah. the women in our industry that aren't being Would you seen. say it's getting better? Would you say, you know, the creative um, industry yeah. itself is getting well, better? Well, there's more female creative directors. Um, yeah, I've noticed a bit of a shift um, yeah. more recently. I think it, it's always fascinated me. You think we're talking about the theatre of the mind and the outputs that are our, our thoughts and, and our creativity. There's no gender associated no, with but creativity. I, I think but I just it's, it's – I feel like it's the boardroom dynamics inside meetings. I feel like it's it's that men have this sense that they can express themselves in the world more readily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, they sound like feminist arguments, and maybe they are. But it's taken us a long time to sort of realise that and do something about it, right? I mean, but this I pro- unconscious bias that permeates our industry is just unheard of, I, or what has been until more recently. I don't think I represent the traditional photographer in, in a few ways. Um, Here we are, two guys talking about issues. About, I mean, we know nothing about. But yeah, we should, we should seek the opinion of somebody <laughs> who knows. But I, I don't think I have a strong ego with my commercial work. From the perspective of how I deal with myself on a photography shoot or in a boardroom, I'm not very pushy. Um, I have a certain way about confidence about going about my business. But maybe that confidence is derived from being a man and feeling like I can say what I think Mm. at crucial times. 
Um, and and look, I know some very assertive women in our industry, uh-huh. but I, I just feel like they're, they're judged differently for making those assertions. Yeah, my wife is both Asian, Singaporean. She's about five foot four tall, and she works in media. Quite you know, media the same as we're advertising essentially quite a volatile kind of cutthroat industry she really has to have this sort of personality you know you sort of have to fight for your voice at the boardroom which is a real shame you know? well i guess that's why i'm suggesting there's some work overlooked in sydney at the moment coming out of a lot of the women who who have been very sensitive to what's going on broadly culturally and have a lot to say but for whatever reason haven't quite had the same platform mm. linda lines is mm-hmm. another really great photographer yeah. who's doing some some good work. Yeah. But they're also making work beyond that that's important. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm trying to do the same thing. So um, what are some of your side hustles then, you know, beyond, um, beyond the Akirabili uh, Greenway project? Well, the, 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 that's a labour of love. That's mm-hmm. a project that's going to cost me an incredible amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But that's fine. That's, that's it's because it's something I deeply care about. Um, but really, I shoot commercials. Either. Isn't that funny? We spent the whole time talking about everything but what you actually do. So, Chris, what do you actually do? Well, I'm, I make commercials. <laughs> I make commercials, whether they're content films, you know, sponsored documentaries, independent documentaries, ads, billboards. Mm-hmm. Mostly I shoot billboards. Um, and I'm mostly in the business of trying to deliver something both technical and emotional at the same time. And who are some of your clients? I've been working with Telstra. Um, Do you work with them direct or through the agency? No, through agencies. Through yeah, the, I work through, through the monkeys. Sure, um, sure. And partner with the Pool Collective on, on almost all of my jobs now. Um, NRMA are another big client, the Australian Defence Force, Qantas, uh, Macquarie University. So, um, yeah, look, that, that's, that's sort of a bit of the roster from the last 12 months or so. Have you noticed the style of photography that is being commissioned shifting? Are there any trends that yeah. we should be looking out for? Yeah, I, I kind of roll my eyes when you talk about trends because for a long time I thought that advertising was too stifled um, and so I tried to unadorn my advertising as much as possible um, and, and people started to brand it authentic um, and then and then real and then real and authentic. What do they mean, like a reportage sort of uh, journalistic approach to photography? Well, what, I'm what not do they sure mean? what they mean, but, they, you know, they say things like... Make Chris, it real. Yeah, they say Chris Island shoots real real farm real australian farmers i'm like well it's not an unreal farmer i don't know what else you'd call not an actor maybe you've got to just say this is not an actor but that shouldn't Mm. be a novel idea but um so look definitely the trend in advertising went from being highly constructed and crafted and i think budget necessitated a lot of this shift that used to frustrate the shit out of me i worked with a guy i won't mention his name this guy was an absolute piece of work and he came from a background that was exactly that, this hyper-realistic, super-crafted. Uh, his idea of good uh, photography was to to stitch together 50 different shots to get this one Frankenstein-like monster of a shot with this person, this talent at all these sorts of unrealistic, jaunty angles and well, like, you know what I think that's about lighting. It was oh. sickening. I think photography's um, a bit of an elusive art. Understanding what makes a good photograph isn't easy. I mean, I only just read a line last week that I felt resonated with me because a friend said, what's good photography? And I couldn't answer her. So I, I, I read up on it. And, and, I've, and I feel like it's, it's reassessing something that otherwise looks normal. Would you say, because I default to filmmaking, would you say photography is the art of telling a story in a single frame? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's shifting a mindset 
or encouraging an emotion or a feeling or changing somebody's mind um, through one moment in time. And I've worked with some incredible directors and, and people on film production. Well, they get 24 frames or 25 frames a second to do that. Yeah, but they underestimate how powerful a single frame is. Mm, and and mm. with that, they underestimate how difficult it is to make it all yeah. work in one frame. And it really is difficult. But, mm. you know, it's fun to work with those parameters. And I was going to say, you know, in regards to people overcrafting work, I think it's because photography, the ability to shoot well is an elusive thing. And it's easier to go for concrete ideals i'm going to get a camera with more megapixels i'm going to shoot with a better lens i'm going to i'm going to shoot with better cleaner lighting i'm going to shoot with more flash i'm going to comp this and comp that and go for perfection but it's all a distraction james because the best work speaks to you and chris it goes back to exactly out of it well it goes back to exactly what we're saying earlier it's the variables it's the things that are out of your control that make it rich and, 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 you sit and layered in, that's, you know? that's where it's sometimes you know i get in a bit of trouble because in a boardroom a client says well you know are you going to deliver and i'll say well yeah i think so but are you prepared to take a risk you know you get kicked under no, the I table love it. I love it. But, but what you're trying to say is if something happens i'm going to respond to it but if you ask me to promise what it is i'm going to deliver you then i can only promise something pretty safe and mundane yeah and yeah. so that's where advertising in australia generally yeah. lives i love this i love this sensibility as well it reminds me one of my favorite film directors is Terence Malick. I oh, absolutely yeah, love cool. him. And he shoots and he's renowned for shooting in a way that is incredibly organic, almost to a point where he goes off for a long time off script. You know, and the production the producers are just sort of pulling their hair out. Yeah, he must be hard he's, to he's support. Off, he's off chasing like um Albanian muskrats that are scurrying up a tree and he's just got to get this. This is the shot. Do you know <laughs> Or he builds the same set twice, like with Tree of Life, so yeah. it faces both the sunrise and the, and sunset, the sunset. And he can so shoot in golden hour all gold, day. Golden hour all There's day. no exactly. stopping. Imagine yeah. producing that. Oh, you should read Days of Heaven and how he shot that as well. Like he'd go out for that window. It was like a you know almost a thirty second window in the plane the plains of the Midwest, and just to get this magic hour. And the whole thing took like fifty times as long as it should have. You know the production because he was he was only shooting during that one little magic hour period. But it's not safe. It's not measurable. And and no, you're trying right. to maximize the extent to which something magic happens in front that's of your right. lens. And if you're spending half an hour shooting your, your you know your your master shots then you you've then spent like 10 minutes framing up a grasshopper on a blade of wheat <laughs> yeah, you've asked me in the past you know what yeah. what what would i um what would i change or or how would i encourage the australian advertising industry to mature mm. visually mm. um I, I feel like i'm going to ask myself that question because i want to answer it <laughs> it might be good, you, you could <laughs> Of course, it could be the the, the B side with, with with Chris Island. Don't worry, we'll change the podcast. Maybe there's some clients listening. <laughs> I, I, that is one of my questions, though. What would you do if you were the client? If, if you I were wearing the client hat, what would okay. you what would you do? You know, the first thing I'd do is I'd probably ask how how I could take more of a risk with what I'm doing. Hmm. So if if I was commissioning a photographer, maybe I could ask them, how do we introduce more variables into this? Instead of asking, how are you going to deliver? How can I be sure this is going to work? I could say, what variables could make this magic? That would be a start. The second thing is maybe to, you want a client to really trust you, I suppose, when you're making something. You, you, but, but then, in, you know, looking at it from the client's point of view, the client knows what will and won't fly. But a lot of it comes down to imagination. And I'm in the business of being creative daily, hourly. And I'm dealing with people who are creative some of the time. 
but they're also covering their asses most of the time. So it's kind of this idea of expecting creative understanding between people from disparate worlds. So I guess creatives just want a little bit more trust, um, more room to experiment, to bring back something slightly unexpected. I wish in Australia people were more prepared to um, go against the grain. I think there's a, particularly in Australian design, designers are the worst. They all want to have the same haircut. They want to look the same. They Mm. want to wear the same glasses, the same bags. They want the photography to look the same. And they ask you to reproduce what they've seen. And and they almost point to a picture and say, can you make that? Mm. I think Melbourne's one of the most amazing cities in Australia. It really is, if not the world. And I really love Melbourne. I love Sydney. I'm a city boy through and through. But I love Melbourne. But it was really interesting. There was this sort of level of insecurity that permeated um, a lot of the culture down there. And I'm sorry, my Melbourneite friends, but you've got to have a look at this. And it was this almost like... um, just like New York, this this coffee style is such and such, or like the streets of Tokyo. This is such it's a, like no, it's the, not. It's Melbourne. No, it's fucking Melbourne, man. Yeah, like, own it. Yeah, own it. Do you know, it's like photographers often get compared. They say, "Oh, that's very Nadav Kander," or "That's um, you know, you, you know, people are trying to compliment you, but you're also offended <laughs> because you yeah. think, can't it just be me?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's wrong with the city being a city? And Melbourne is arguably the most iconic city in Australia. I really think that. I mean, Sydney's beautiful. It's beautiful, but in terms of cultural substance and Well, there you go. You know, if I if I said to you before that that the the art of a portrait exchange is me taking my unique qualities, asking you what your unique qualities are, understanding yours, and creating a fusion between who I am and who you are to make something new, why can't brands do the same thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. If you had, in a sentence, one thing to say to people that would sum up your, your approach to photography, essentially your philosophy, you know, it could be a meme, it could be a sentence, it could be a set of commandments, what would that be? Maybe it's it's something I heard in Greenway, actually. It's a preparedness to be wrong. I am prepared to be wrong. I'm prepared that all my views are wrong. I'm prepared to accept that everything I think I know I don't. And, and just that willingness. It's, it's the complete opposite to arrogance. That's where you're receptive to other people's ideas and that's where your ideas hold the most power. When you're willing to accept that you don't have the answers and therefore you need to find them and that you don't have the answers therefore what it is you're not not understanding maybe comes down to your own willingness to engage with work Mm, that's brilliant i'm willing to be wrong adam adam from greenway used to say i do not know i do not have all the answers that's what man needs to say you know and i'm hearing him saying this and this is a man with you know schizophrenia accepting the fact that we don't know everything we go about our lives trying to be you know we're trying to to wear this certain guise you know we we try to convince people that we're far more important than we really are so so it's really liberating to say i don't know you know how are you going to deliver on this campaign i'm not sure Mm. but you've got the right people in the room if you were to sum that up as a shirt, what would it be? Not that we'd wear it, but, you know. Sum it up as a shirt. I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. I love that. Maybe I'm wrong. Would you say that was somewhat your purpose? Open to being vulnerable. Embrace the chaos. And. Yeah, all those things. Yeah. <laughs> I think they sound pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah look, mum always said to read. 
um, read because other people, you know, as much as much as I am unique and you're you're unique, we, we've come through, you know, depending on your your religious or, or or scientific beliefs, we've come through a long chain of people. A lot of people had to survive to parent raising ages to to bring you and I here. Yeah, you know, so it's not the and going first, back not, to anthropology. It's not man's it is, first it rodeo. A, it is a very humbling. Uh, realization when you start looking into your own history so i think it's about discovering where you're from it's it's like having having a willingness to understand where you're from and then deciding what small way you're going to contribute and and i don't know where that comes from is that a fear of death is that your ego like you know i've got to leave my mark on something i'm not sure it is i think it's just like having a maybe having a concern to leave with something to leave people with something um so yeah i you know i live in hope that my photography one day will do that whether it's an image or or something that i can leave behind and where can people go to find out more about your projects your photography both your commercial work as well as the greenway project well i'd recommend people have a look on the pool collective's website which is thepoolcollective.com or you can look up my own website which is christopherisland.net what you'll find mostly on my work at the moment online is commercial work. I gather you're not on Instagram. Yes, I am. You are. <laughs> but it's funny because Instagram is is completely flipped. Yeah. The stuff yeah. I'm showing on Instagram is growing pains mostly. Oh, fantastic. So yeah. it's all black and white. It's almost all exclusively film. What's your Instagram page? Island Handle. Future. Island um, underscore. Island like the country underscore future. F-U-T-U-R-E. There you'll find most of the stuff that goes on in the dark room downstairs. Fantastic. I can't wait to see the dark room next to the, the washing machine in the dryer. and Yes, the laundry. We've got to call it a laundry <laughs> dark laundry. room. Yeah, yeah, the laundry. Chris, thank you so much for coming in and oh, it's sharing, been my pleasure. sharing these wonderful insights on photography. I've really enjoyed this chat and I'd love to have you back. You've got to update the listeners on how your Greenway project is going. Well, I have committed and come hell or high water to do it this year. We'll definitely have to get you back in there. And sorry, did you say there's a link, uh, there's a working link that people can know? Not, not for the Greenway so work just have to. Just to sit and wait. I have to wait for the book announcement. Wait for the book announcement. Oh, mate, I'll have to get you back in and you can do a signing for me. So, again, oh, thanks for absolute me. pleasure, mate. I've really enjoyed this no, chat. No, we have and, good uh, conversations, James. Uh, we I sure do, it. man. We sure do. And, yeah, thank you. All right. Cheers. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word jamesbside.com and you can follow me on instagram at bside podcast if you have any suggestions or feedback on the show please email me at hello at jamesbside.com and don't forget to rate review and subscribe the b-side with james barrow is produced by me and i really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential thanks for listening and until next episode cheers